<laughs> we need to pray, um, not just for our kids, but for ourselves. And we're going to do that with this prayer for illumination. We're going to ask God to speak to us this morning and open our hearts to what he would have for us. So uh, we should have the prayer up here on the slides. Would you join me as we ask God to come and meet us? God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be opened to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we've been doing this series in the book of Acts. And the, and the, the book of Acts is basically the story of the early church. This movement of Christianity that started 2,000 years ago has literally changed the world. It started in Jerusalem, but now, uh, as we've been moving through the book of Acts, we see it begin after Acts 12. It begins to spread throughout all the nations through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas begin their very first missionary trip. It begins in Antioch, and we have a, a slide here, a map. If you'll notice where Antioch is down on, on the right, that's where Paul and Barnabas, uh, that's their launching pad, so to speak, for their first missionary trip. They head uh, straight for Cyprus. And in Acts 13, what we're told is that when they arrive in Cyprus, uh, they head straight to the synagogues. You see, this, you'll see, is a pattern for Paul and Barnabas on this trip. When they arrive to a new city, they go to the synagogue. They begin to evangelize the Jews there in whatever city they're in. Uh, from uh, Cyprus, they then sail up to Asia Minor, uh, where Paul and Barnabas end up in Paphos and go on uh, to Perga in Asia Minor, uh, then to Antioch in Pisidia. And again, as we see, as you read through Acts 13, you'll notice that Paul and Barnabas, they go to the synagogue right away and begin preaching to the Jews. Now, what's interesting is we notice a trend as well. As Paul and Barnabas are doing this, uh, they, they run up against opposition. There are Jews in these cities who incite uh, opposition to Paul and Barnabas and their message. And they're kind of driven out of the city that they're in. That happens to them in Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, at the beginning of Acts 14, uh, yet again, we see Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium. And on the map, you can see it's kind of southeast of Antioch there. Uh, they get, again go to the Jewish synagogue, and again, they're driven out of the city. And that brings us to Acts chapter 14, verse 8, where Paul and Barnabas end up in the city of Lystra. And this is where I'm going to read. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me as a sign of respect for God's word. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, and they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. You may be seated. In this story, we see a significant turning point in the evangelism, the missionary work of the early church and the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned uh, previously, each time Paul and Barnabas would go to a new city, they would go to the synagogue, they would preach to the Jews uh, and, and seek to show them how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messiah they had long uh, waited for. You see, Paul, in these moments, was speaking to a Bible-believing group of people, so to speak. They were familiar with the Old Testament. They understood the stories there and their history. And Paul's purpose and goal there was to show them that all that they had waited for was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But here in Acts 14, in Lystra... We see Paul doing a sort of street evangelism because there was no synagogue in Lystra. Lystra was kind of this frontier city. It was kind of like the old west of the Roman Empire. It's a pagan city full of polytheists, people who believed in lots of different gods. And so this is the first record of a Christian evangelist preaching to a pagan crowd who didn't have any uh, biblical upbringing or education. And after Paul uh, heals a crippled man from birth, uh, this pagan crowd interprets Paul's actions this way. We're told in verses 11 and 12 that the crowd says, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, this story, I think, is very helpful for us today because uh, it's obvious we live in a polytheistic society. We live in a a pluralistic society, just like Lystra. If you've ever gone on Google's website, you know that they often have uh, Google Doodles there when you go to, to type in a search. And on, a, on a, I think, an annual basis, Google holds a competition uh, Google for or Doodle for Google is and and they get artists, young artists from all over the country to su- uh, offer submissions that would be posted on the Google website. Now this year's winner, maybe you saw it uh, just a few days ago. They put it on the website, and here's uh, the winning uh, Doodle. 
that was written or drawn by Sarah Harrison. Now, the prompt for this doodle was this, what I see for the future, what I see for the future. And Sarah said this about her submission. She said, my future is a world where we can all learn to love each other despite our religion, gender, race, ethnicity, or sexuality. I dream of a future where everyone is safe and accepted wherever they go, whoever they are. And I think this doodle is a good a symbolic representation of our society and where our culture is headed, uh, very much like Lystra in many ways. We're encouraged to believe whatever we want, uh, whatever works for you. And we, we see that fewer and fewer people in our society are actually uh, raised in a biblical uh, educational environment. Very few people know the Bible. Very few people understand the Christian faith. And so it's very important for us to see how Paul approaches this crowd of people who are very much like the people that we interact with on a daily basis in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, people who do not know their Bible and do not know the Christian faith. You see, Paul shows us how to share the gospel with a group of people who have no biblical upbringing. Now, it's interesting to compare Paul's speech here in Acts 14 with his speech in Acts 13. As I told you, Paul there was going to the synagogues. And Paul gives a long speech there where he talks about uh, the Old Testament. He talks about Moses. He talks about David. He talks about the Exodus. He talks about the law. Uh, He talks about forgiveness of sins. Uh, All of these things that you might hear in a very conservative church or or within a conservative Christian setting. But in Lystra, when he's speaking to a a biblically illiterate crowd, he doesn't mention any of that. It's interesting, isn't it? He he doesn't quote scripture. Uh, He doesn't talk about the law. He doesn't talk about sin. He doesn't talk about heaven or hell. Because Paul understood that he's talking to a crowd who had no comprehension for any of those categories. And Paul's heart is to reach people with the gospel. Not try to force them into his categories, but to adapt to the categories that they already understood. Notice what Paul says in verse 15 to the crowd. He says, men... Why are you doing these things when they try to worship him and Barnabas? He says, we also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul is adapting his message to his audience. And that's a lesson I think many of us need to learn when we think about sharing our faith with other people. Paul takes this different approach. Uh, It's very interesting. Paul takes a different approach to the concept of sin itself. Uh, Often when conservative Christians like us talk about sin, uh, we tend to talk about the law. We tend to talk about things like the Ten Commandments and how when we sin, we're breaking the law of God. But Paul talks about worship. It's very interesting. The crowd was attempting to worship Paul and Barnabas in verse 13. uh, It talks about the priest of Zeus 
coming uh, from the temple and bringing an oxen, which was a very expensive sacrifice in that day. Uh, garlands, uh, wanting to offer this sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas. And, and Paul attempts to show them that their worship is misdirected. He tells them to turn from these vain things to a living God. And see, this is another way to talk about sin. You can talk about sin as breaking the law. But perhaps a more effective way in our day is to talk about sin as worship, misdirected worship. You see, sin isn't simply about doing bad things. Sin is about worshiping the wrong things. That's what Paul means when he uses this word that's translated vain things. Uh, other ways that, that's translated are worthless things or empty things. Uh, it's those types of things, and you, I know you've experienced it, that you've given yourself to, and after you've experienced it or done it, it leaves you with an empty feeling. It's that type of vain thing that you, you give all of your time to, and yet it doesn't satisfy you in the way that you were hoping it would. That's what the Bible describes as idols. If you read throughout the Bible, it's the various ways that the Bible talks about idolatry. And Paul here is pleading with his crowd, please don't fall into the trap of idolatry. And as we see our culture moving farther and farther away from any sort of absolute morality, any sort of concern for God's law or what the Bible teaches, this concept of law-breaking, it doesn't really connect with people. As Don Carson says, in a culture like ours, a better way to unpack the nature of sin is to unfold the nature of idolatry rather than the nature of law. And so if you've been at King's Church for any amount of time, you probably have heard this language of idolatry, of idols of the heart. That's what we tend to talk about here. That's how we tend uh, to address the sin that is present, not just in the things that we do, but in underneath the surface, deep within our hearts, the vain things that we're giving our hearts to. Now, there are a few things, a few conclusions that I want us to, to notice in this story that I think are helpful in explaining this whole concept of idolatry and the, things, the vain things that we worship. And the first is this. From Paul, Paul's perspective, everyone worships someone or something. Everyone worships someone or something. Now, Paul viewed human beings as worshiping creatures. Uh, there were two options for Paul. Either you're going to worship vain things or you are going to worship the living God. Now, Paul uses similar language when you read the book of Romans, the first chapter. Paul says this in verse 25. He's talking about people who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we see the Lyconians doing that here in our story. They want to worship created beings rather than the living God. Now, I know that this perspective is offensive to many people because there's many people, and maybe you're one of them, who refuse to see yourself as a religious person. You're not a spiritual person. 
maybe you're, you're rooted in science. Uh, you believe science, a scientific method, is, is the path to knowledge and truth and that the things uh, that science can explain the things of our world and, and how, how we are to understand why things are the way they are. And, and maybe as a secular person, uh, you don't like to think of your secular belief as a faith or in any sense uh, smelling of, of religious uh, undertones. But in fact, um, Paul would argue that you indeed, like the many millions of people who worship through a religion, that you as a secular person are just as religious, that you are just as spiritual, and that you have given your heart to something, that idolatry is not limited to worshiping a statue. That idolatry involves giving our heart, our identity, our purpose into things that are part of the created world instead of the one, giving it to the one who created us. And the Bible shows us that God created us to be worshiping beings. And so one way you might think of it is this, that on a Sunday morning, you believe that you chose to come worship this morning. And in fact, if you came to King's Church and you are worshiping this morning. But I think the Apostle Paul would argue that whether you came to King's Church this morning or not, you still would have worshipped. That you cannot avoid it each day you wake up. You are participating in acts of worship. And how you spend your time and what you devote your resources to. These are all acts, religious acts, that help define you and define what a good life is for you. And so that's our first point that we see from this story is that everyone worships someone or something. And the second thing that we notice is that that our idols are formed by the stories we tell. It's helpful to know Lystra's historical background here to understand what's happening in this story. We know that at this time in Lystra, there was a well-known legend that had been written years before by the Latin poet Ovid. It's a story of Jupiter, who was also known as Zeus to the Greeks, and Mercury, who was also known as Hermes. Uh, Jupiter and Mercury came to the hill country in the Lystra area, uh, disguised as mortals seeking uh, somewhere to sleep. And they go, to thousands of ho- they go to a thousand homes in this area, and everyone refuses them uh, a place to sleep. Until finally they meet this elderly couple. They have this small little shack, uh, and they offer them food and bring them in for the, for the night. And as the legend goes, in appreciation... Zeus and Hermes transform their little cottage into a temple. And the little elder, elder, elderly couple become uh, priests and a, pris, and a priestess. And so all the other people that refused Zeus and Hermes at that time are actually destroyed by a flood. And so the, the Iconian people knew this story. And so they see these strangers come into town. They heal this crippled man. And because that's the story that was in their mind, that's the story that they told in their culture, they interpreted what happened 
that, that Paul and Barnabas were in fact Zeus and Hermes in disguise. And they did not want the same thing to happen to them that happened previously. And so they do the only logical thing, and that's they seek to offer a sacrifice to them. And so the story shaped their worship. And in the same way, our culture tells stories. Our culture shapes the idols we worship. Think about the stories that our t- TV, our movies, our music, our art tells us. Uh, what, what do our stories value? What do our stories uh, say about the importance of money in our careers, in our looks? Uh, what do our stories tell us about how to find fulfillment through our, our sexual experiences? What do our stories tell us about the importance of being free to choose whatever you want, whenever you want? This is one of the reasons we do Film Club every month. And by the way, we aren't doing Film Club this month because of Easter and and Holy Week leading up to it. But normally, as you know, we do Film Club, and and we don't just go to watch a movie. We go to understand the story that the movie is telling us. We go to understand the gospel story uh, that the movie is offering. It's a different gospel than that we have, oftentimes. But it's a gospel nonetheless. It's an offer of salvation. It's an offer of the good life. It's a take on uh, what is good, what is right, uh, what is meaningful, what is significant. And so we want to understand those alternative stories that our culture is telling. Because whether we know it or not, we're being influenced by them. Some of you might be embarrassed to admit it, but I know some of you watch The Bachelor. And, and I think I, I have a slide here. Uh, what story is The Bachelor preaching? What, what offer of salvation does this television show present to you and tempt you to worship? Is it good looks? Is it sexual experiences? Is it romance? Is it the significance of being picked? You see, these are very deep and strong and powerful stories that our culture tells us. And we are influenced by them. Just as the Lyconians were influenced by their story. And it shapes the things that we worship. And so we need to be aware of that. So I want to ask you, what stories are you believing? What stories are influencing you? What stories are influencing the people that you interact with? We need to understand these if we're going to understand the gospel story of Jesus Christ. And so we see that everyone, first, everyone worships someone or something. Uh, Two, the stories that we tell shape our worship. Uh, Number three, idols come in all shapes and sizes. Here, uh, the crowds believed Paul and Barnabas were disguised as false gods. And, and we might think, well, well, how silly, right? How, how quaint? How, what, a, what a funny myth this was, that they would believe such a ridiculous thing. But, but you should understand it from their perspective. Uh, they were just like us. The Lyconians were longing for security, for safety, 
And, and here they're, they see this miracle, and they're confronted with the very real possibility that these are, are gods in human flesh, and that they could wipe them out. And so they do the very reasonable thing and try to offer a sacrifice to them. They are driven by the same basic core human needs that you have and that I have. The need for security, the need for love, the need for significance. You see, these core needs are what drive us to worship. So we're very much like them. And this isn't silly when you think of it from that perspective. In their day and age, that was their expression in their, of their need. In our day and, age, uh, day and age, we express that very differently. For them, if you were a soldier, you worshipped the god of war. And you sacrificed that god to that god because you believed that god could help you win in the battlefield. Today, what do we worship? And what do we long for that idol to give us? Today we worship, thing, maybe, maybe you worship your kids. Maybe it's your kids that you feel will give you the thing that you, that you didn't get when you were young. Maybe you want your kids to succeed, and if they fail, you're afraid you'll be a failure. I want to show you this picture um, that you might, maybe you've seen in, you know, when your kids are doing it. Maybe, hopefully it wasn't you, Right? <laughs> But maybe you've seen other parents like this. What's going on here? Worship. This is an act of worship. This parent is upset. Perhaps because their kid didn't perform. Perhaps their kid didn't do what they told him to do. And this parent's worship is revealed in their response, in their explosive anger you see here that idol is being poked because that parent is giving all their significance into their kid's performance. Anyone here who's a parent been guilty of that? And this is why idols are so tricky and so nefarious. Uh, when Christians talk about idolatry in worship, you know, we tend to focus on bad things. And there are plenty of bad things that be can become idols. I mean, when you sit for hours at your computer and surf the web for pornography, you are participating in an act of worship. You are giving yourself over to an idol that's offering you salvation, that's offering you fulfillment. And you're willing to waste all those hours for something that is empty and will leave you wanting. Something that is vain. And there are other destructive activities we might think about, like drugs and gambling. All these things that all of us would say, those are bad things, we need to stay away from those things. Yes, that's obvious, that's idolatry. But what about good things? What about exercise? Exercise is a wonderful thing, but can't exercise become an idol? Become something that you give all of your time to. And therefore, don't have the attention needed to your family, to your, to your friends, to your work. You see, this is why idolatry is so tricky. It can, it can show itself in various ways. And, and it can lead us down a path uh, of worship we're not even aware of. 
And so we need to be asking ourselves these diagnostic questions. Uh, questions like this. What if you lost it would make you feel that life wasn't worth living? Or maybe, what desire makes you most angry when not fulfilled? Or how about this? What are you most afraid of? Or maybe, whose approval matters most? See, these are all wonderful questions for you to ask yourself, for you to ask others, that can help you look deeper into the recesses of your heart to see if you've given yourself to these vain things. And it takes a lot of work to discern these idols. And it takes a lot of work and effort and courage to be willing to expose yourself to the Holy Spirit in this way. And I wonder, will will you be courageous enough? Will you be courageous enough to ask your heart these difficult questions? And what I love about how Paul uh, addresses the crowd here is he, he doesn't just give them the negative to say, turn away from these vain things, which is often what we focus on. Paul also gives them what to turn to. He says, turn to a living God. Don't turn to the emptiness of, of, of idols that will never fulfill you. He says, turn to a living God. And what does that turning involve? Well, that's simply the biblical principle of repentance. Uh, To turn away from the things we've given our hearts to and turn towards God who wants us to come, who offers forgiveness to us. And so this turning involves recognizing the idol and confessing it. And I think a great way to do that is to tell another person you trust. Tell another person that you're seeing this about yourself. If in fact you feel that God is telling you or showing you an idol, a vain thing that you're giving yourself to, I would encourage you, share that with your spouse or with a friend or someone you trust. Say, I see this about myself and I want you to know about it so you can pray for me. That's a part, a step of repentance is to recognize it, confess it. Also, we see an element is a hatred for it. I truly believe that when we begin to see these vain things for what they truly are, empty, worthless, we should begin to have a visceral reaction to it because we know that it's, it's leading us down a path towards death. It's leading us towards a path that will never fulfill us. Have you ever felt that? You're caught in a pattern of sin and and you know that it's leading you down a path of emptiness and yet you fall into it time and time again. Doesn't that get you angry? Don't, Don't you begin to hate that? I think with repentance, there should be this visceral hatred for the things that lead us away from the living God. And so we we recognize it, we confess it, we hate it, and then we turn to God and receive the forgiveness that he offers us, and receive the life that he gives us in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to turn from those idols and turn to a living God. God gives us the very things that we're looking to that idol to give us. Only God gives gives that to us in all its fullness. Only God provides and offers the life that you're longing for. 
That's what Jesus came to announce. That's what Jesus came to show us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so that offer is here for you this morning. Maybe you're stuck in an addiction that you can't break and you're longing, you're longing for God to free you. Well, he can. I'm here to tell you. He can and he will. As you turn from your sin and turn towards him. Now, you might be thinking uh, with me this morning as you're processing this, you know, maybe you didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. Maybe you don't have a biblical education. Maybe none of this makes sense. And you've always wondered, does God exist? Is he real? And, and maybe you've said, like so many people, that if God would only, you know, speak to me in an audible voice, if God would only show himself in the sky, then I could believe and then, and then I could become a Christian. If God would only communicate with me in the way that I, that I want him to. And, and notice what Paul says in this passage. Paul shows the Lyconians that, that God has indeed already shown himself. Uh, Paul points to, to the fact that, Paul, or that God has not left himself without witness, for he, de- he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You see what Paul is doing. Paul is not pointing to the Bible to say, here is the evidence of who God is. Paul is pointing to nature. He's pointing to those experiences that they have, those blessings that they have already been given. And Paul is saying, look, in these good things, God has revealed his goodness to you. He, he has revealed his reality to you. You don't need a voice from heaven. You don't need him to show himself in the sky. He has already shown himself. You just need to open your eyes. You just need to see the reality of who he is. And he's trying to convince the Lyconians to receive and accept the living God for who he is and how he's shown himself in every blessing that they already have. And I think that's very true for us today, for each and every one of you. God has shown you his goodness. Will you have the eyes to see it? Will you have an openness to receive what God has already given you in the person of Jesus Christ? God in the flesh, the true God in the flesh, who came for us, died for us, was raised to life so that we might have life in all its fullness. Would you spend a few moments with me as we close, as the band comes up to to play our last song? I want us to spend a few moments just reflecting on this passage. I want to invite you into that courageous moment of reflecting on your heart, of asking God to show you those parts of your life that you have given to vain things, the ways that you've chosen to turn away from God and instead turn to things that have left you empty. Would you take a moment and acknowledge and recognize those things? Holy Spirit, as we come into this precious time, a time of reflection, maybe the one time all week where we stop and actually look at our own hearts, 
would you show us, show us the ways that we are missing out in, in turning away from you and draw our hearts, draw our hearts to you, the living God. Jesus, make yourself more lovely, more beautiful, more enticing that we would, Lord, begin to hate the things that in, enslave us and we would begin to see that you, Lord Jesus, are the one master who can ultimately free us, ultimately give us life in all its fullness. Make that a reality in our hearts in this time. Encourage us as we leave today that we might know that we are loved, we might know that you are pursuing us, and we might hear your voice. Lord Jesus, amen.